Welcome to this week's episode of Insects for Dummies. Today, we have a special listener request episode from Sarah Tellez about human parasites. First of all, thank you, Sarah, for requesting a topic. I had a lot of fun writing this one, and I hope you enjoy the information. If anyone has an insect or topic we haven't covered yet, but want me to, please check the email in the description, and you can send a request over to me, and I will definitely check it out. Now, let's get into today's topic. Human parasites are divided into two categories. You have ectoparasites, which involves anything that stays outside your body, and then there's endoparasites, which are organisms that invade your body and use you as a home. Some classic examples of ectoparasites are mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, lice, and other arthropods that may or may not transmit diseases by feeding on your body. One infamous example of an ectoparasite would be the botfly. If you're familiar, then you know why. But if you're not, I will give you a brief explanation. Botflies are flies whose larvae live in a host and feed off of them in their skin. Fortunately for many of us, the botflies which can use humans as a host are only native to Central and South America. The eggs get deposited on your body, either through the bite of a mosquito or another organism or even the botfly itself. But mosquitoes are the main transmitter for botflies in humans. One species in particular, known as Dermatobia hominis, captures mosquitoes and other arthropods and then lays their eggs on it to transfer to a host. Dermatobia hominis can literally be decoded as derma, meaning skin, and hominis, which is derived from hominy, or the tribe that we humans fall under. I don't know how these flies do it. I've seen bot flies before while staying in Belize, but the ones I saw looked really dopey and as incompetent as Homer Simpson. Were you a little? So I'm puzzled to say the least. Once the eggs have been dropped off near a bite from the mosquito, these larvae hatch and crawl into the skin where they begin feeding. You won't notice you have one until a few days have passed after hatching. I would say you would know around a week or 10 days after being infected. The larvae will stay in you as well, until they're ready to pupate, which could be between a month and 128 days, depending on the climate. Some methods for removing one after you notice are to suffocate it with a slab of petroleum jelly. So basically what you wanna do is you put the petroleum jelly over the hole where you notice that the larvae is, and this will suffocate it, right? So the larvae can't breathe, it'll crawl towards the surface to try to find what's going on, where the air is. It'll crawl into the jelly. Now this is when you just wipe the jelly off. So you just remove the worm entirely. Or you can put a slab of meat over the area where you've been infected and just hope that the larvae is incentivized to leave you from this new slab of meat that you've put on. And then you can just remove the meat, which will hopefully have the larvae in it. You would know because you can feel it moving. Now you cannot pull one out yourself because they have barbs which prevent them from coming out forcefully, and you might even risk breaking it, which would then require surgery to remove and further possible complications. I have fortunately never experienced a bot fly before, but I've known quite a few people who have, including my younger brother, and I actually had to remove his using petroleum and a band-aid. 
but this episode is not specifically about the botfly, so we're just going to move right along. The next ectoparasitic insects that get an honorable mention in today's episode are the sand fleas, colloquially known as jiggers, bicho del pie, pico nigua, or chigoe fleas. These little dudes are found in South America, Central America, the Caribbean, Africa, and India. Unlike other fleas, which just feed off your outer skin, these ones actually burrow into your skin and stay there for anywhere between four and six weeks. So here's what happens. A fertile female flea burrows into your skin to feed off of your blood for the sake of her young. The males do not do this, and they only feed off the exterior of your skin like all other fleas. The females cause what is called tangiasis, which occurs when they are fully embedded in you and cause an itchy, red, and swollen lesion where the flea is. Now, fortunately, these fleas cannot jump very far, and as their name suggests, are primarily found in sandy areas, which means you are most likely to get one on your foot. Treatment for these include freezing the area to kill it and then extracting, extraction of the flea through surgery, or application of an anti-parasitic wax or oil over the area. The people most at risk for this kind of encounter are those walking around barefoot or living in remote villages, rural areas, and or farms. Now let's talk about endoparasites, which fall into two categories. We have the protozoa and the helminths. Protozoa are exactly what they sound like, micro-single-celled organisms, which multiply in the host. One example for a protozoa parasite is plasmodium, which is transmitted by mosquitoes. And this is actually the cause for malaria. God, mosquitoes are just the best. Wow. Another example of a protozoa parasite would be trimpan... Oh God, this is difficult. Trimpanosoma cruzi, which causes Chagas disease and is transmitted by insects like the kissing bug, which we actually mentioned in an earlier episode of this podcast. I believe it was the, uh, is it a bug or insect episode? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the one. Okay, now we're going to get into the fun stuff. And by fun, I mean creepy and gross, which are the helminths. These are unable to multiply inside your body like a protozoa, but they are much larger and actually grow inside you. An infamous example for this would be the tapeworm, which is something I think we all have at least heard of before. And if you haven't, well, I am shook. Tapeworms are not insects, just like every other worm, and are in a separate class of animals known as Kistoda, or parasitic worms and flatworms. These worms make their way into our systems by exposure to their larvae and or eggs in food or water. They're primarily within your intestines and feed off the nutrients that you should be absorbing. As a result, the worms grow and you end up not receiving the bulk of what you should be from your food. Fortunately for these worms, they cannot reproduce inside you, and you might never even know you have one. Many cases actually have no symptoms at all, and the worm just kind of lives inside you for the duration of its life, which could be up to 30 years in an individual. Sometimes the infection can be invasive. This means that the eggs made their way outside of the intestines into other cell tissue, and this is not only a problem for you, but this is actually also a problem for the worm 
because it's not getting what it needs. The symptoms for this would be headaches, cysts or lumps, allergic reactions, and sometimes seizures if it's affecting your central nervous system. Now, the good news is that getting a tapeworm is actually quite rare. And if you cook your meat properly, then you shouldn't have a problem. Also, if you do happen to get one, then you can treat it with medicine from your local pharmacy. But there are also a lot of natural remedies for tapeworms as well. For example, papaya and garlic. These both have anti-parasitic worm properties, and you can find recipes online for many anti-parasitic worm foods or beverages, but you have to take these on an empty stomach and wait a little while before eating or consuming something else. Another parasite, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, is the roundworm. Just like tapeworms, there are many different species of roundworms, and they all reside in your intestines after ingestion. Roundworms have different symptoms depending on the species, but like tapeworms, it is also possible you'd never know until you see the evidence. Roundworms, like tapeworms, cannot mature in a human body, so there's no need to fear that they will overtake you once ingested. Obviously, if you ingest a lot of eggs, that is another story entirely, which is why it's really important to wash your hands and make sure your food is clean. Roundworms can be found in most countries, but they do prefer warmer climates, and infections are not common in developed countries. To get rid of roundworms, all it takes is some anti-parasite medicine. There are actually two medications in particular, albendazole and mabendazole, which are the drug of choice to treat almost all parasitic worm infections. For example, hookworms. These are another type of roundworm, but what makes them different is their ability to enter through your skin. Now, hookworms enter you through your feet. Because as you're walking barefoot, you can sometimes walk over dirt mixed with infected feces. Again, this is not a common occurrence at all for most developed countries, or if hookworms are not common in your area. And treatment is the same, just like any other parasitic worm. Symptoms for hookworms are milder when compared to the other worms mentioned so far, but you can still experience cramping, diarrhea, weight loss, and loss of appetite if you've been heavily infected. I'm not going to go in-depth on every worm or parasite out there in this episode, because there are at least 300 different species of worms alone and 70 species of protozoa, and that is only talking about endoparasites. But before we end today's episode, I want to cover a brief history on parasitology in humans. The first written records of parasites in humans comes from Egypt and date as far back as the year 3000. And this time, information was written on paper made from the papyrus plant. There's actually an ancient text called Papyrus Ebus, which contains information on both roundworm and tapeworm remedies using some of the ingredients people still use today, like honey and castor oil. And yes, I did in fact find a translated version of this ancient text, and I found the pages that talk about parasites. Thankfully, Modern-day technology has made it very easy for people to find information on the web. Anyway, let's go back to the past and talk about the Middle Ages, or not, because frankly, those days were depressing and ignorant, which is shown in many of their medical writings. They did have some mentions on parasitic worms, but for the most part, parasitology was born in the Renaissance period, 
when our boy Linnaeus started describing and naming everything he came across. But this was still slow. By the 20th century, only 28 species of parasitic worms had been described, compared to the now 300 we know today. Protozoas are much smaller and as a result didn't even begin to get noticed until after the invention of the microscope in the 17th century. But honestly, we can't say any actual work was done on them until much later in the 19th century when bacteria were a thing and we had germ theory on lockdown. This concludes today's special listener episode on human invaders. If you enjoyed this episode and or are enjoying the podcast, again, it really helps if you rate it and drop a review on whatever platform you're listening. You can send a listener submission yourself, as stated earlier, to insectsfordummies at gmail.com, and you can check out the Instagram page at insects4dummies. Next week, we'll be covering an insect that comes from a place we've joked about quite often, and at this point, I think you know exactly where that is. In the meantime, enjoy the holidays, and you'll hear me next week.